Hi, my name is Antti Rocic and welcome to Artist Vivendi, The Craft of Living. So today I'm introducing a new segment and what I plan to do is that at the beginning of each episode, I want to share a couple of updates, what I've done already in the past, something I've done in the past, but also share with you some thoughts, perhaps even about current events or share with you a couple of things that I have discovered in my readings, a book that I'm reading or some new insights, some articles perhaps that I want to recommend, which are kind of, these things are kind of independent of the episode itself. But so in other words, this is meant to be a preamble. Now today, uh, what I have in mind is to share with you a book by Noreen Kavaja. She is a professor of religious studies at Yale University, an associate professor, and she wrote a book, The Religion of Existence, Asceticism and in Philosophy from Kierkegaard to Sartre. Now, as you can see from the title of the book, this is some heady stuff in here, but she shares some very interesting things in her introduction. She begins by sort of outlining the major players in what is known as 20th century existentialism and also 19th century existentialism. She focuses initially on Sartre and she does so in order to point to a mistake that people make where they often associate existentialism or 20th century existentialism with atheism on the one hand and on the other hand with an emphasis on a range of negative emotions. She lists those emotions such as fear, anxiety, isolation, boredom, guilt, nothingness, infinitude. So that is one way in which people portray existentialism and she wants to push back against that. One way in which she does so is to show how a lot of these thinkers, Heidegger, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Søren Kierkegaard, how they have many overlapping features. And I believe this is a very interesting argument that she makes. She, she makes the claim that existentialism is not so much a movement. Okay, so these are the individuals and we can associate existentialism with that particular group of people who emerged at that particular time. So that's the movement. No, she, she doesn't think that's the best approach to existentialism. And uh, instead, she suggests existentialism is a type of tradition. It is uh, an aspect or it is characterized, let me put it that way, by intergenerational influence, some of which are dating way back to Pascal and even earlier to antiquity, especially Socrates, and I would say also Jesus. But, but here are the thoughts that I wanted to share. Here is what she writes in reference to Kierkegaard. In fact, most of the philosophical and psychological architecture of Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard's writings, seem to design to portray Christianity, seem designed to portray Christianity as the form of life that emerges when a reflective individual begins to take up the problem of his own existence or her own existence as a matter of passionate personal concern. So for Kierkegaard, existentialism has to do when you really begin caring about your life 
and you care about it in a passionate and in a personal manner. And then comes a sentence which I believe is, is really great. It says, faith is not a dogma. Faith is not a dogma, but an autopsy. I mean, that is brilliant, right? How often we associate faith with a body of beliefs, and they are beliefs, of course. I don't want to denigrate that. But this notion that faith is autopsy, it is kind of uncovering in yourself what needs to die when you are confronted with the ultimate. I believe that is one way in which we can understand that statement. We continue with Kierkegaard. She writes, He sought to position philosophical discourse against abstraction. And anyone who knows Dietrich Bonhoeffer will immediately recognize that that is one of the central themes in his writings. He constantly writes against abstraction and the danger of abstraction. And he defines abstraction in, in a variety of ways, but that is a central theme throughout his life that he returns to over and over again. So this is what Kierkegaard is doing. Uh, he, he, he positions himself against abstraction as a development and intensification, intensification of the latest question and assumptions that guide human beings in everyday conduct conduct so that is the emphasis right that is one of these germane points of existentialism that kierkegaard certainly emphasized we see this in luther she writes because luther believed that living as a christian living as a christian rather than reading or learning so living as a christian rather than reading or learning is what makes one theologian and that is something that certainly we need to take to heart. I want to take to heart. Let me conclude with this great quote. She writes, when we describe something as existential, a question or topic, for example, we're describing something that is personal, but not exclusively emotional or psychological. We're describing something that concerns big life choices, and deeply held values, but it tends not to be reducible to the abstract language of ethics. Just as emphatically as an existential crisis insists on its being someone's, on its being personal, the qualification existential also implies that the crisis bears a relation to the whole of things, to the stake stakes and limits of existence. Perhaps most commonly, we use this term to carve out a space within the rhythm of daily life for why questions that are without clear answer. Philosophers had been using the word existential in a technical sense for centuries including that which relates to the existence of a thing in contrast with its being or essence. And so she concludes by noting how then existentialism refers something to something that is both deeply subjective in the sense of being personal, because my existence, however much it is always dependent on others and in relation to others, is something deeply personal for which I'm responsible. So this subjective element is there. 
but then also systematic in the sense that the biggest question that I'm dealing with are not simply questions that are original with me or questions that no one else is asking. They actually go to the essence of what human life and what human living is all about. So anyway, so these are some very interesting quotes from this very interesting book. And I thought that this would be kind of a preamble for today's episode. In my last episode, Life Lessons Learned, I share a couple of things that I have learned over the years, things that I would tell to my younger self if I had a chance. Not all of the things that I list, not all of the experiences I share will be relevant to you. As a matter of fact, your life might be on a completely different trajectory because you are in a different setting, you have different vocational goals. And yet at the same time, it is in the process of of sharing these things that we often learn from each other. And I find this to be quite important. I have learned from others. Uh, Sometimes I listen to a presentation and then I pick one or two points and then the other points don't really relate to me. But there's usually something that I can take. And I hope that there will be, even today, at least one little or two little crumbs of things that you will find applicable for your life. Now, I spent quite a bit of time talking about habits, especially this idea of keystone habits, which I take from, which I've taken from Charles Duhigg and his book, The Power of Habits. And he notes how these keystone habits are small changes that people introduce into their routines and which then have an unintentional carryover into other spheres of life. You know, you change something, a minor thing. You remember my shampoo illustration where I noticed how I struggled with this problem of delayed gratification, these micro impulses of laziness and how I became aware of other areas in life, in my life where that is present and how that in turn really led to some very significant changes, completely unintentionally. You know, I realized then a couple of weeks down the road, other aspects of my life, right, have been deeply affected by becoming more aware of these tendencies. So that's what I wanted to share, what I shared last time, actually. And then I talked about also progressive extremism, this example from near Iyal, and I actually provided a link in the episode notes, and you can listen to this brief presentation that he has. I also talked about mini habits or atomic habits and this whole idea of aggregation of marginal gains. And so I thought, you know, I think it's really important to get a handle on habits in general, right? On what they are and how they are acquired and how they function and their significance. I think it's very, very important. I mean, this has been around for a long time, right? This reflection on the importance of habits. Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics, way back in the 4th century BC, writes about the centrality of habits for a flourishing life. For him, it is impossible to talk about human fulfillment and human flourishing, the realization of your personal potential, without talking about habits. Because all these good things, right, the good life, 
the happy life, the fulfilled life, the flourishing life is a byproduct of you acquiring a range of, of habits. And I think that intuition is absolutely correct. And he believed that habits are not capacities, right? These are not things that we are born with. Right? These are not things that we can simply learn theoretically. No, no, these are things that we have to develop practically. We develop these habits or these virtues by repeatedly doing them. And we learn what they are by observing others. So that was Aristotle. And he believed, as I said, in the centrality of habits. And many people since then have picked that up. I mean, you see this in the Bible. The Bible constantly talks about habits, even though it's not using, in the New Testament, not necessarily using the Greek word arete or virtue. It nevertheless talks about these states of character all the time. But if you forward it a little bit more towards closer to our time, you know, and you read someone like William James in his Principles of Psychology, published in 1890, there in, in the book in chapter four, he talks about human beings as essentially being, we are essentially bundles of habits. You look at human lives, you look at people, you look at how they conduct themselves day in and day out. You see how they react in different situations, how they speak in different settings, how they treat their friends, their family members. And you can totally detect that all of that is driven by an element of automaticity. In such and such a circumstance, you know, when they're tired, exhausted, they start lashing out or whatever, right? And, and the, the habits are so powerful, as you know. I mean, this is nothing new, right? But, but, but we know that they kind of constitute a second nature. They function, in other words, again, as if they were natural or biological. They, they function without much thought. They operate under the hood, as it were without us even paying any attention to this. And they incline us, right? As James K. Smith once noticed, they incline us to act in certain ways in an automatic sense without, without us having to approve of them. They just lead us to, to act in certain ways. And that for me was an important insight in life. This insight that what really matters our habits and not so much motivation and willpower. Willpower and motivation are secondary. The more things that you can move from willpower to habits, the greater success you're going to have. Right? And so someone who is exercising on a regular basis, he or she does not have to muster his or her willpower to get exercising. It's kind of almost a routine, right? You, you get up, you spend some time in journaling or meditation, you put on your clothes, you run, you come back. Sometimes you feel like it, sometimes you don't feel like it, but you don't really pay too much attention. This is something you're just doing. Like it doesn't really matter. Sometimes I don't feel like you know, brushing my teeth because I'm tired, but I still do it. And so it is with other areas in life as well. And Wendy Wood, who wrote the book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. She beautifully writes about that, how habits really should have a primacy in our thinking when we seek life transformation over willpower 
and motivation. And I didn't understand this for a long time, I have to admit, because Mel Robbins, who also wrote some books and she's out there talking about these issues, she once made the statement and it took me aback, you know, when she said, you know, motivation is garbage. And I, I didn't really understand that. Like, what, what does she mean by this? Why is motivation garbage? Why, why is motivation garbage? Isn't motivation the most important thing? Like when you feel excited about something, you have passion for something, you have an insight and you really charge, you really go for it. I, I didn't get that. Well, then I understood, I think I understand what she means. Um, it's not so much that motivation is bad. You know, motivation, the motivation of comprehension, the motivation to change your life, the motivation to live differently, more purposefully, more meaningfully, is awesome. The problem is that motivation alone will not carry you a long way. Motivation is going to wane. Hey, you can have the greatest motivation, and I used that example last time, by having these New Year's resolutions, and they go on for a couple of weeks, and then motivation is gone. Like it's January, it's cold, it's dreary outside, you'd rather be in bed, or you'd rather just chill, right? The motivation is gone. And then what happens? Like you stop exercising. So I understand totally what she means by this. And I, I agree. And this is an important insight. And also this, this idea that we should focus more on habits rather than goals, right? Goals change. We change. New opportunities open up. It's good to have goals, right? But what's more important are habits. It's good for you to want to become a writer, if that's your thing, right? Or whatever else you want to do in life. One day to perform a musical instrument or, you know, develop some other kind of competency. But that's great. I mean, have that goal. But what's really more important is the kind of structure that you put in place for that result to take place. The result is going to happen anyway. If you develop proper habits and proper routines and proper systems of being a writer, right? Like very specific commitments. Like every day at six o'clock in the morning, I will write for an hour and a half, regardless of what my day is going to be. And I will write a minimum of 500, 700,000 words. I'm just making this stuff up. Right? And you have this in your life. And you, and you develop a habit of habitual writing. Writing becomes easier. The routine is kind of established. You know, the brain is kind of being formed. You're kind of primed to do this automatically, so to speak. The results are going to happen. Of course, you have to do the proper kind of practices. The deliberate practice isn't just about doing and without considering whether what you're doing will result in, in proper outcomes. You have to tweak and to see perhaps my approach is not the right one. That, that's a given. But this idea that you should focus on habits rather than on outcomes is a brilliant insight. And I wish that I understood this early in life. You know, I would have these, you know, whatever goals and, and then I would lose motivation. And because I didn't have a system, I didn't have a way of system, systematically pursuing those goals in terms of establishing habits that, that that would really, I would not really achieve what I wanted to achieve. So that was kind of an important, important insight. Let me though conclude with another sort of notion here. Uh, I want to make clear that life is not always about success. Right? 
many insights, many changes, many victories are precipitated by many more failures and false starts. Sometimes in life it seems to be the case that you have to fail many, many, many times on the same issue for you either to understand that your strategy was wrong or for somehow for the accumulated failures to create a potent energy in you of being so sick and tired of not being able to overcome certain things that finally you said, I mean, they, I, I, it's over. I, I really want to do this. I, I, I can't handle it anymore. I'm so determined to succeed this time around. And so in a sense that the, in that being the case, failures are not really failures. Right? I think that we, we need to learn from them. Like, like after action reports, you know, you try something, you fail. Okay. I think when you have shame and self-hatred, that is, or guilt, absolutely the worst possible emotions you can have. They're the worst possible states of mind. It just leads to, again, feeling of self-loading, which then leads you to various addictive behaviors. And you try, you fail, you learn, you adjust. And I want to give a very specific example. And those who know me know that I share this from time to time. I've shared this before, and that is my struggle with sugar. I developed a sugar addiction some time ago, a couple of, ten, more than 10 years ago. And there are various reasons why that happened at that point in my life. And I generally think that by nature, I seem to have like an addictive personality so I can easily get addicted to things. And so I became addicted to sugar. And the worst thing is that I absolutely do not have any mechanism for regulating that. that I cannot say, okay, I'm going to eat, eat like just half of the ice cream. I have to finish the whole thing, right? Just half of a huge chocolate. No, it has to be the whole thing. And I would just no, <laughs> do that. And, and the results were not pretty in terms of my health. And so I tried to overcome, you know, I would make this commitments right from now on i won't do it and then i then i try and then someone offers me something or i go you know somewhere and then i take a piece of cake and then i open the door right and then again i'm back to it and so i, I tried different things and two things happened really helped me tremendously i firmly believe in, in fasts they have to be done in the right way you should be very should consult your doctor if you're doing water fasts. You should be careful, of, obviously, if you're doing even juicing for an extended period of time. But for me, that was very helpful to reset my sugar craving. I needed to have a drastic stop. I couldn't... This kind of progressive extremism in this instance did not really help me. I had to go curl turkey. And then I did it a couple of times and I was free. I felt really great. And then, you know, someone would make, let's say a sugar-free vegan cake with dates. Oh, this is great. This is healthy. And then I would eat it and I would start stuffing myself. And then the next day, again, I am on this sugar romp. So I had to learn. You see, this is the learning aspect. I had to learn that with certain things in life, you have to 
reach these, define these very bright lines, like in Alcoholics with AA meetings, right? Alcoholics Anonymous. You cannot be an alcoholic. You cannot drink in moderation. You have to be, you have to go for complete abstinence. And that's what happened in my life. So I started first, okay, I won't eat, I won't eat sugar, but I will have refined sugar. Didn't help. Okay, I will not have refined sugar, but, you know, like maple syrup and dates, if it's vegan, I'll eat it. Did not help. Okay, let's go for dates. If it's made with dates and my wife makes it, and now there's nothing else in there, then I can take it. Didn't work. And so I had to I had to learn this, right? I had to learn that in my particular condition, I cannot eat any sweets except fruits. Not because dates are bad. Dates are good. But they are kind of leading me again, my body to expect sugar. And I start craving sugar. And, and I cannot do that. So this is very individual, right? I individually in my life, I learned that that is who I am. It was not... Well, it was kind of progressive extremism. I had to learn in the way over a period of time what works for me. But that was quite important. But you see, I didn't learn this overnight. It actually took me a long time. At one point, I heard a kind of a voice in me, Auntie, if you don't change, you're going to die. So failures, you know, we have to, we have to learn from them and we need to adjust. False starts are not really false starts. They're learning opportunities. And so self-compassion and grace towards ourselves is something that is deeply needed. And in the end, guys, there's no finish line, as Rich Roll likes to say, right? There's no finish line. Stasis, the permanent, permanent frozen condition where you don't grow, it's not possible. Right? We always need to grow. We need to embrace the process. We need to embrace the journey, the road, or that, that's really what matters. And so this is not about perfection. This is not about you know, feeling guilty. This is about learning the craft of living. And yeah, the first time you take a piece of wood or you take a, you know, a hammer and try to nail some nails, yeah, you're going to bang your finger, right? And you're going to miss the nail. But you do it five times, thousand times, five thousand times. And then you can basically start hitting the nail without even looking almost, right? So th- this is the same with life. We need to learn these things. So thank you guys again. And this was another kind of personal episode where I shared some of these insights, especially as it relates to habits and as it relates to this idea of being able to forgive ourselves and to be able to have self-compassion and to be able to understand that life is not about some permanent fixed position. It is we grow every day, and every day is an opportunity to learn things about ourselves, to increase something, fine-tune something, like make one thing 1% better, my schedule on 1% better, my approach to things on 1% better. And, and I believe that this is awesome, that life is an adventure, and, and by, the God's, by God's grace, we will be able to reach a good measure of our potential on this earth. Again, thank you so much for listening. I wish you many blessings. Live well and until next time.